Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... This is not about us. It's not about the brands of our various organisations. It's not about the longevity of our programs, right? It's all about the outcomes that we're chasing. So we have to find our allies. We have to find our partners and we have to work together. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thank you for listening to episode 386 of the Impact Boom podcast. My name's Sarah and I'm passionate about visioning, empowering and contributing to initiatives and enterprises causing positive transformation locally and globally. And today we're speaking with Sarah Davies. Sarah has had a wide-ranging career with executive roles in a range of industries from tertiary education to private sector consulting, marketing and strategy. And for the past 14 years, her focus has been on the for-purpose sector where she's been a passionate advocate for children and social change. Her desire to work with like-minded people to ensure that children and young people are safe and secure and building positive futures was forged through 18 years as the director for Kids Undercover and an exciting and rewarding four years as the CEO of the REACH Foundation. On today's podcast, we will be discussing how Sarah and her colleagues are creating a safer world for young people and the changes and opportunities in philanthropy, business and education. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Sarah. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's great. Yeah. Could you just start out by sharing a little bit about your background and what led you to the work in the social impact space? Professionally, I'm a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Like I'm not an anything in particular, which sometimes worries me, but I'm clearly not enough to have done anything about it. My focus on community building and the for-purpose space really was just part of my DNA. So the influence of my parents, the circumstances about where I was born and how I grew up, really, almost before words could describe it, I always understood the critical nature of equality of opportunity and equity and how kind of life's chances randomly threw that out of whack for so many people. And I was always one of those kids that would whinge on about how things weren't fair. It's not fair, it's not fair. You know, one of those little bratty, not fair, it's not fair. And my father's response every single time was, what are you going to do about it? So I was raised with this expectation that I had agency, that I had options and choice and had the ability to influence. I suppose that's developed into a fundamental belief that all of us have an ability and a responsibility to create the world we want to live in. But for so many of us, for whatever reason, some of that ability is diminished. And so I think the onus is on the rest of us a bit more to help put that ability back. That's just how I've grown up. And I've been really lucky in that I've been able to choose careers, hobbies and community roles that just feed that desire to build strong communities. 
And were there any particular milestones that have been turning points for you on that journey? Look, I think a couple of key lessons rather than milestones. The first one was it's so easy if you work in the social change space, if you think about it, to get overwhelmed with the scope of the need, the escalation of the need and the breadth of the issues and the challenges that we have. It's very easy to intellectually get completely drowned by a sense of this is just so big, how are we going to tackle it? What I've learned is that everybody, every day, something deliberate and intentional and positive actually seriously shifts the needle. Rather than being the rabbit in the headlights and thinking, oh, this is all too hard or where do you start? Actually, individual people, small people, ordinary people, we can affect incredible change just by focusing, being intentional, being deliberate and finding allies to do it with. My other big lesson that I wish I'd learned like 15, 20 years earlier, but I didn't, was that actually this is a long game. You can't fight every battle all the time at the same intensity. And I think in my 20s and 30s, I was red hot go at bloody everything. And I didn't understand when people would say to me, you've got to learn to bide your time. That would frustrate me. And I think I'm in my late 50s now. I really understand it's a long game. Play that game with strategy, with intent, with thought. Pace yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And as the CEO of the Alana and Madeline Foundation, can you share a little bit more about that role, the enterprise, its purpose, and the impact that it's been generating? Love to. Thank you. So as a foundation, we were born out of the Port Arthur tragedy when Walter Mikak lost his wife and two daughters, Alana and Madeline. And so he founded the organisation on the belief that all children should have a safe and happy childhood and should live free from violence and trauma. And kind of 26 years later, that is still at the heart of us, the flame that keeps us going. Our focus is to fight for the rights of children and young people to be safe so that their future is strong. It's a very simple proposition. We do that in four key ways. The first way is through our trauma-informed work, and this we've been doing now for 26 years, which is the really specialist therapeutic healing and recovering from trauma work that we do with children and young people who are referred into us by our partner agencies, most often through the police or family violence agencies. We work individually with clients to help them heal and recover, and we run a case management support system around them with their carers, their parents, doctors, schools, teachers, to create that ecosystem around them to support them. And we also have extended that work into kinders, early childhood centres, and now into primary schools as a result of demand. Because what we're seeing is young children turning up to these services, displaying lots of behavioural signs that something has happened. But our early childhood educators and our teachers, the pre-service training doesn't help them identify it doesn't help them respond to it and so embedded in a center or a school working with the school the teachers both to support the children but actually to build a whole trauma-informed understanding and practice across the organization that's the first part the second part of our work is around empowering positive digital citizens this kind of grew out of that it grew out of an anti-bullying program that the organization started 20 odd years ago 
that morphed into sort of anti-cyberbullying and the whole eSmart School program that's been running now for about 11 years. And that eSmart School program has developed then into online safety. And now our framing is quite intentional and deliberate about how do we make sure we build the digital intelligence and media literacy skills, attitudes, competencies and behaviours in children and young people so that they actually are able to make the most of all of the opportunities that their digital worlds and digital lives present, but they also can keep themselves and other people safe and create good experiences for them and other people online. And that's a national service primarily in partnership with schools across the country. Our third area of work builds on the IP and the content from those areas, and we run a program called Dolly's Dream in partnership with Tick and Kate Everett, who very sadly lost their daughter to suicide about four years ago. It's really an anti-bullying, kindness, online safety and wellbeing program, but exclusively for remote, regional and rural Australia, which is where Tick and Kate are from and where the communities help us deliver those programs. Then our fourth area is across all of that, but, but by doing all of that work on the ground, what it allows us to see and what at times makes us pull our hair out in frustration are all the problems with the system design. So whether it's lack of regulation or poor regulation, the rules of the game don't work. And so our advocacy and policy agenda gets sucked out of our experience on the ground. And we have a range of priorities that we're trying to prosecute through a kind of advocacy and policy lens to sort of put the fluoride in the water. Because if we can get the rules of the game changed and the universal services actually meeting these needs, then we don't need these programs. So Yeah, and the advocacy for that systemic change. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Sarah, I know that you've worked in the philanthropy space for a very long time. So really curious, can you tell us more about philanthropy in Australia as well as the changes and the opportunities that you've observed in that space? Sure. Look, I have to say I think philanthropy is absolutely critical to resourcing and empowering positive social change. In some cases, we do know how to fix these problems. The things that are blocking us are not about knowledge and programs. But most times, this is hard stuff. It's not easy to address. And so the resourcing that we need has got to have a high risk tolerance, has got to embrace innovation, has got to embrace and allow failure and learning and improvement. And philanthropy, I think, is our social risk capital. It's the only dollar in play in our charitable sector across the country, which, by the way, is kind of 8% of GDP and employs 11% of working Australians. It is a significant engine and an economic powerhouse in Australia. But philanthropy is the only dollar in that mix that is free to behave like that. And I think what I find really sad is when we treat the philanthropy dollar in the same way as we treat a government dollar or a corporate dollar, because by design they are different and you lose its power if you don't exploit those characteristics of that social risk capital and that freedom to the absolute max. So I think philanthropy is absolutely critical and the most beautiful enabler of positive social change. And philanthropy in Australia is really strong. Like we have seen over time, there have been individual years where it's dipped up and down, but over time really good growth in planned and thoughtful and structured giving, which is how I define philanthropy. It's different to the spontaneous, generous 
fundraising giving. It's about planned, thoughtful, structured, over time, with intent, and by definition means in partnership and thoughtful about how that dollar gets used to create impact. We have seen great progress, I think, in both the size of philanthropy in Australia and also its in attitudes. How philanthropy responded in COVID, for example, was just amazing. Giving went up. The way that philanthropists managed or controlled their grants was suddenly much more open and flexible, much more responsive to community needs. So that behaviour, long-term, untied funding, back good people, not being overly restrictive with how you use the money as the recipient, I think is where you can get the most power out of philanthropy. Now, what I find disappointing is Philanthropy Australia released a report recently that indicates that actually that behaviour has sort of slipped back to more of a bit of a restrictive, tied approach. I think that's a real detriment. The power from philanthropy comes from its freedom. The other area where we do need to see changes, we just need to see more of it. So whilst it's grown, we still really lag other countries in terms of how many people in that high net wealth space are giving this way. I'm not going to compare us to America because lots of people do that and actually culturally I think we're quite different. But in Australia as a percentage of GDP, total giving is about 0.8%. Whereas in New Zealand, much closer cousins to us, it's 1.8%. We need more giving and more philanthropy. The one area I think that philanthropy has changed significantly in the last five or six years is its understanding of the role of advocacy and system change, though. And what has been really fabulous to see is the appetite of philanthropists to support policy and system change through advocacy work. And that looks like it's a sticky behaviour, which is fantastic. It's really interesting. And what are the actionable steps and the key learnings that you could share with change makers across sectors looking to grow their impact? So, Sarah, I'm really glad you gave me a bit of a heads up on the question because I don't know that I could answer that very helpfully off the cuff. I have thought about it and I think there are five things and they're going to sound a bit kind of motherhoody, but I really think this is what I've learned and in no particular order. The first one is we have to connect, right? We have to build our networks with our peers. We have to engage. We have to keep learning and listening and be out there and connect with communities and peers all the time. The second one builds on that, which is we have to collaborate. This is not about us. It's not about the brands of our various organisations. It's not about the longevity of our programs. It's all about the outcomes that we're chasing. So we have to find our allies. We have to find our partners and we have to work together. And that's when really exciting shit happens, right? That's when the magic really happens. The third one is we have to keep learning. It's really easy in an organisation where resources are really stretched and skinny, demand is increasing, the work is really important and in many instances life-changing or life-saving. Time to stop and learn is seen as a bit of a luxury, but we must keep learning. If resources are limited for formal timeout or formal professional development, then we have to find other ways. For me, one of the ways that I have loved learning and learn all the time is by participating in other organisations' 
boards and committees and working groups because that allows me to think at a systems level or at a strategic level but without the daily pressure of actually delivering it right here and now. And it then allows my brain to make connections between that and then what I'm trying to do in our organisation. The fourth one is related to that and is something I think is getting increased attention in a community and society is about we've got to be curious, right? We shut down difference. We shut down disagreement. We've really got to build our curiosity muscle, chase the evidence. What's the new thinking? What's the counterpoint? Why do people disagree? Why did that not work? If we don't really feed our curiosity muscle, we're going to be so much the poorer for it. And then the fifth one is I think we, and it's going to sound really daft, but we have to be generous, right? We have to be generous with our resources. We have to be generous with what we know, with our knowledge, with our tools. We've got to put it out there and give it to anybody else that it might help. Because first of all, the world gives it right back at you. But secondly, it's about the outcomes and a rising tide lifts all boats. Fantastic. I love that, Sarah. And I love that you've broken it down into five really actionable, succinct pathways that people can take on board and implement. That's really awesome. You've got extensive experience in the youth and education spaces. So like, what are some of the key learnings, challenges, and opportunities from working in this space? I feel so blessed to be able to work in this space. For me, prevention, early intervention, children and young people, that's like my happy place, right? Equality of opportunity, all of that. It's just perfect. I think that the learnings and the opportunities are kind of the same thing for me. So the top two would be, first of all, the bloody brilliance and power of children and young people in and of themselves right freaking awesome if you need to be inspired or motivated about the future of the world go and hang out with some children and young people because oh my god are they exciting their ability their resourcefulness their resilience their insight we need their voices and their experience and advice on how to do this stuff better How do we get them front and centre in terms of all of the policies and regulations and the programs that have been designed to affect them or, in many instances, affect them and no one's even bloody thought about them and the impact that it has on them? That's been the biggest lesson and joy, but it's also our biggest opportunity is how do we harness their wisdom, their insight, their energy, their ability to actually design what they need. The second learning is an opportunity and really if we are thoughtful and deliberate and intentional and we use evidence-based practice we can create really positive change this stuff works and it may be slow it may fail at times but we can do this it's absolutely within our power to do it I see it every day so we just need more of that I think learnings are the opportunities From the challenges perspective, and look, you've caught me in a week where I've read a couple of things that, first of all, make my blood boil and then make me more determined we need to do this stuff. The first one is that last week the Australian Maltreatment Study Report was released. And if you haven't read it, I encourage people to have a look at it because It's not the Australia I thought we had. This was a nationally representative survey of 8,500 adults aged 16 and over. But what the survey did was ask the adults about their childhood experience. 
what the researchers found was that about 40% of them, 40% were exposed to domestic violence against another family member. 32% of them, so a third of them, experienced physical abuse. 28% of them, more than a quarter, experienced sexual abuse. And 30%, another third, experienced emotional abuse. If you're going to your child's community sports game on a Saturday morning, right, and you've got two teams on the field or on the court, a third of them are going to have experienced or will experience physical abuse and emotional abuse. Like, what freaking kind of country are we in where that happens? So, look, you've asked me that question in a week where that stuff's sitting at the moment really heavy with me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's our freaking challenge. We have got to stop that. Can't go beyond that at the moment. My head and my heart's a bit too full of that right now. Understandably. Thank you for bringing that to all of our attention and how stark, real, yeah. confronting and heartbreaking that reality is. Yeah. yeah. So it's the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, ACMS, easy to Google, terrific report in the sense that it's accessible and understandable. But shit, do we need to change it up? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, I know that's just kind of... No, no, I'm really glad that you shared that. I'm really glad you shared that. I've also done teaching and worked at all kinds of different schools which traverse many realities. And when you share that, I'm like, yeah, that's not a stretch for the kind of young people that I've worked with as a teacher and in other roles as well. So, yeah, Yeah. no, it's important for people to hear that and for all of us to hear that. Something that I'm also really curious about when you're talking about the light, the wisdom and the potentials that our children and young people can bring us. And I a thousand percent agree with you on this. Do you have any really amazing examples of this that you've witnessed and seen that have been really palpable and powerful? Oh God, us adults and oldies, we've just got to get out of the way. Totally. When I think about some of the really exciting ways that young people are creating change. There are three clusters. There's the whole for-purpose, side hustle, social enterprise space, right, and just extraordinary young people doing very creative, brilliant things. That's everything from starting a consumer goods type organisation or a bespoke product but actually with purpose, with intent, environmentally sustainable for sure sharing b core like the whole attitude is different yeah it's phenomenal we're so lucky because that wave and envelope will affect us all i think is just extraordinary what i love about that is it also blurs the boundaries between charities and everybody else charities are not something on the side for when things go really wrong that you don't have to think about most of the time that is not what we're about and so this kind of blurring of positive citizenship and agency is I just think really exciting that wave that volume of behavior and attitude affecting us I think is just really phenomenal that's a really obvious way I think we've seen it play out the second way is it's an oldie but a goodie is this just grassroots community activity That might be activism in a political or a progressive sense, but it might just be 
just not liking something, so fixing it. I live in St Kilda in the city of Port Phillip, for example, and last year there was this amazing young woman who wanted to grow veggies on the nature strip on her street and there were council regulations said she couldn't do it, yada, yada. So she said, actually, I think that's wrong. Let's change it. So she did. She activated the community. That's not political. It's not Birch gardens, amazing. It was, and suddenly the council goes, yeah, actually, you're right. Let's do it. One young woman saying, Fabulous. Silly, let's have a crack at it. Come on, change the rules. Just extraordinary. So that kind of just, you know, now here in our place. The other thing that is happening in my local government area, this is not connected to the government, it's an independent thing, is there are a bunch of us now getting together to found a Port Phillip Community Foundation, like an independent philanthropic entity that we're looking to people within Port Phillip to give to and then for the community to decide where the money should go within, again, our community. That sense of self-sustaining and local agency, that people power, whether it's granting veggies, building culture, dealing with social issues, all of the above is fantastic. The third area, when I think about it, they've been around for a while, but they're just such genius ideas and they work so well. One of my favourites is, so I spent a long time on the Kids Undercover Board, which is an organisation that prevents youth homelessness. That's been a big thing for me in my life about um, to prevent youth homelessness. There's this programme that Info Exchange built and run called Ask Izzy, which is this website that connects People who need services in real time, so right here, right now, whether that's somewhere to sleep tonight or family violence support or something immediate, connects them with over 370,000 services across the country. You get onto the website, Ask Izzy, you put in your postcode, your location, you tell them what you're looking for, and up pops all of the local services that are able to help you there and then. Absolutely freaking brilliant. It's been around a long time. It's grown. But just something like that, we know it works, it's really powerful. Then we talked a bit about system change before, the power of advocacy. Sometimes it is about community activism, but this is just about trying to address the rules of the game. There's been a campaign running with the community sector and a number of philanthropists for a long time called the Home Stretch Campaign. And it's been led and auspiced by Anglicare. And what it was saying to the system is, When you turf children out of state care at the age of 18, you are setting them up most likely to fail and have some pretty shitty experiences. And if you turf them out at 18, we're doing it on purpose, right? However, the evidence says globally, 24 ideally, but if you wait till they're 21, then their life trajectory and their opportunities are just that much stronger just for those extra couple of years. And so this has been an advocacy campaign that has been running for years. And now I think we have every state and territory, perhaps bar one in the country, at least running pilot programs about extending out-of-home care and state care to 21. It's not always the bright, flashy, clever, new thing Actually, that's the most powerful. That's what I meant by this is a long game. There's just some really smart stuff that we've just got to keep doing. And the powerful work that those few years can do by shifting the needle Mm. in that direction. Yeah, amazing. 
And this is another one that I feel like you're going to have multitude of examples of what are some inspiring projects or initiatives that you've come across recently that are creating positive social change oh god there are just there are so many let's go to some hard stuff we've talked about the australian maltreatment study and at the moment in the digital world there is a lot of care and attention as they're flipping should be based on how do we deal with this huge escalation of online child sex abuse material. So sextortion all the way through to like really serious crime that is being enabled by the technology and where the platforms and the services are actually not, I don't think, working well enough to identify it, take it down, report it and be part of stopping it. And certainly our regulations, we've got such catch-up to play. So the eSafety Commission in Australia, we are so lucky. Our eSafety Commissioner is bloody fantastic. She is an extraordinary woman and is doing really great work. But we need government, we need the tech platforms, we need community to come on board with all of this. There's an organisation, Jesuit Social Services, and again, this isn't new, this isn't flashy, this is something they've been doing for a while, but it's been difficult, it's been uncomfortable, and their approach has been how do we actually think about changing the trajectory and the behaviour of the perpetrators? How do we think about where do they get the material, where do they get their allies from, What are the behavioural indicators and patterns that if we understood early enough, we could intervene in a supportive sense? Some of that now is really starting to develop some bloody aha moments. University of New South Wales is doing some research at the moment and hopefully it will be out soon about what are the online spaces that some of the perpetrators and potential perpetrators go to and what are their behaviours and they're talking to them and asking them about these behaviours because that will then enable us to intervene so much earlier. Sometimes some of that really inspiring social change work is at a really gritty end that people don't like to talk about and don't really like to think about but is just so important as as well as that kind of really bright strengths-based enabling end which is also critical. We've got to have it across the spectrum. I'd like to talk about a couple of the programs that we're developing. I talked a bit about the trauma-informed practice that the Lana Madeline Foundation runs and the work we're doing in early childhood centres and kinders. And that kind of grew out of exacerbated through COVID when one of these unintended consequences when the government made childcare free and accessible through COVID to support families through that. What happened was the services started seeing cohorts of children that they'd perhaps never seen before. And so the need was intensified and made much more visible. And then through that work, this year, we are actually launching a service for primary schools, so a trauma lens across schools, because we've had so many primary school teachers say to us, kids coming back into the classroom after a couple of years at home or having started school at home and coming in, seeing all sorts of behaviour That is not about naughty kids, that is not about difficult kids, but actually is indicative of really quite serious experiences that they're having. And so how do we design something that supports the child and the immediate need right now, but how do we actually create capability and capacity in the systems, the universal services, the staff, the teachers, the policies, the structures, the attitudes, the culture of the schools? 
sort of evolving intervention that comes from learning and understanding and importantly partnering and hearing what community are saying I think is really powerful. I'm curious, is there anything you can share about some of those learnings of what feedback you're getting when either the organisations you collaborate with or partner organisations, like what are some of the things that they're echoing back which is really interesting, which is shaping the next steps of program design or Oh, look, there's, I mean, there's so much and that's yeah. where impact comes from, right? Yeah. Listening to that, learning and responding. This is going to sound so bloody obvious but it makes such a difference. It's everything from one end validating someone's experience, right? So as a kinder teacher... When that three-year-old child hands on to your leg at the end of the day at pickup time and says, please, I want to come and live with you, I don't want to go home, what does that childcare, that kinder teacher do? How can you carry that with you when you go home at the end of your work day? Something as simple as, oh, my God, I'm right to feel this. This is important. This is scary. This does need attention. We do need to address it. Right at that wheel end of you are absolutely right. This is really hard and it's wrong and we can change it. We need to change this circumstance and environment. All the way through to something as practical as childhood centres and kinders changing the way they set their furniture out. If you're doing reading time and you're asking the children to come and sit in a circle around you and you're reading a story and there's a child that will not come out of the corner and stamps and kicks and hisses and spits and maybe thumps you or whatever because they won't come into the circle, they're not being a brat. They're doing that because they've learned that's the safest place to sit. Maybe if you have children presenting like that, you don't make them come and sit in the middle of the room. Maybe you do have sofas that have got their back. So something as practical as how you actually physically lay out a space to support children to feel safe and included. And then through to the professional development, the learning, the policies, we have got really good child safe standards in Australia, mandatory child safe standards, but enabling people, giving them the understanding of the tools to make that real so that we have genuinely child safe environments. Mm. There are a thousand ways to do things. And the Alana and Madeline Foundation, like no one organisation, we're a tiny Does player in yeah. this whole yeah. So I think what is really important for an organisation working in the social change space is to be really clear about who they are, what they stand for, what their principles are, what their theory of change is, what evidence base they have. We have three principles that inform and design everything that we do, above strategy, above policies and procedures, above everything, three principles. The first one is we're a rights-based organisation. So everything that we do comes from the question, what's in the best interest of the child and the rights of the child? Now, that is really easy for us to hang a hook on. It's based on the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. There was an additional addendum to that about digital rights of the child, so there's our framework. We're a rights-based organisation. It's about the rights of the child, and so everything starts and finishes with what's in the best interest of the child. Our second principle is that we're a strengths-based organisation and that we work from the fundamental belief that children and young people bring a bucket load of strengths and assets and power and opportunity and potential into the mix and actually that's where we're going to focus. So, yes, we're addressing problems, but we're not addressing them from the point of view of Deficit. Deficit or the problem or what's wrong with someone. 
it is we're a strengths-based organisation and that means most of our work is actually about building capability and capacity in children and young people and in the environment around them, be they teachers, carers, parents, regulators, whatever. If you build skills, capability and capacity, you feed the strengths. Our belief is, our view is, that's actually what creates sustainable and scalable change. Our third principle comes from a mantra that grew out of the sort of civil rights movement in the US, nothing about us without us, right? It's not doing things to people or for people, like it is with With. and even behind, right? It's not about giving children a voice. They've bloody got voices. They're gorgeous. What we've got to do is create channels to market and channels to power for those voices to be heard. To be heard, yes. Yes. So I'm not saying that's the right way and the only way, but that's our philosophy and our approach to chasing the change that we're after with all of our allies and partners. Terrific. And to finish off, what are some books or resources that you would recommend to our listeners? I've got to be honest, I'm like a jack of all trades, master of none. So I've never been the kind of person that consumes discipline-related deep channels I'm a bit of a magpie because I like the synergies of patterns across the top I'm also a reader and there are some podcasts that I like but most of my stuff is reading because I really like the reflective quiet space of holding the words that go into my eyes that go into my head it's how my head has learned to work three kind of groups of things the kind of general news stuff I'm a scanner so I really like The Economist I'm old-fashioned. I get it every week. I like the international flavour. I like the slightly dry humour that it's written with. And it's not my normal world. If you work in this space and all you do is hang out in this space, you can forget that other people care about other things. And I like that with The Economist because it brings some of that back. I am loving at the moment the New York Times. I'm an online subscriber. They do a brilliant daily briefing that I really like because, again, it has a global international lens as well as Australian news. But they also do these amazing deep dives each day into something really random, whatever that might be. I read this brilliant deep dive that they did a couple of weeks ago about the guy that basically invented leaded petrol and also invented the CFC technology that enabled refrigeration. And X number of years later, the two greatest pollutants and harms to our environment, leaded petrol and CFCs, and just unintended consequences years later. I love the New York Times. I do my daily scan. I like the squiz. I know it's not cool, but I love it. I think they're funny and clever. I like the post every day, so I just scan that. In terms of my sector stuff, I actually think that membership organisations that bring community sector colleagues together are really powerful, those intermediaries. We're members of the Community Council of Australia, of the Australian Council of Social Services, ACOS, and of Philanthropy Australia, and they all do daily curation. They do all the work for you, and I get these beautiful daily summaries by theme, by topic, across all media, so all channels, about our sector and our space. For me, that is a great source and resource that I use regularly. Rising tide lifts all boats. I think collective collaboration is the power that's going to do this stuff. 
I subscribe to various newsletters and bits. The podcasts that I like, we have to say Impact Boom. I'm not just saying that, but yes, Impact Boom. And similar to Impact Boom, there's another local one called Humans of Purpose that I really like. My daughter got me onto the ologies, so I'm loving that. It's a bit random and out there. But one of my favourites is Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know whether you've read Freakonomics. It's the random putting together of information and challenging assumptions about causality. I really love that. And I find that really helpful when thinking about how do we solve intractable problems. I'm a bit obsessed at the moment with reframing and the power of reframing. And that revisionist history is in that style. Amazing. Thank you. That's a lot of amazing, powerful and diverse resources that you've shared. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Your insights have been really generous and practical, profound, systemic and really helpful. So thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Absolutely pleasure, Sarah. And just a final comment. When people care and understand, it empowers them to take action. And so I think we are inherently kind and good, right? I am not, I don't think we're evil as a species. I actually think inherently we're collective, we're collaborative. And when we understand, we then care. And when we care, we activate. And it's that simple. That's what we need. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.